All right, you guys bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Um, we pray that you would be present in this time. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open all of our hearts and our minds to understand your scriptures. And I pray that um, as you accompany the preaching of your word, that what is done in this time will be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So, guys, our uh, sermon text this morning is going to be uh, from the gospel reading, John chapter 9, if you want to turn there. I, uh, I had to break from the psalm pattern we've been having because Chris, ever so kindly, left me with Psalm 23, which is only, like, probably the most well-known passage in the entire Bible. Um, and so I'm completely and utterly unqualified to say anything you've never heard about Psalm 23, so we had to pivot this morning, and that's okay. Um, but I think we'll see as we do consider John 9, our gospel reading, um, that it does in fact have some things to say to us in this Lenten season. So uh, we're going to start off with just a few brief words of context about the gospel of John as a whole. Uh, and the first is that John loves contrasts, right? So all of the Johannine literature, the, his letters, the gospel, and even the apocalypse, are filled with these contrasts, right? Contrasts like good versus evil, truth versus lies, life versus death, and light versus dark. And in the very beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, in the prologue, John brings out the light and dark contrast specifically as he says that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this light metaphor, this contrast between light and dark is present from the very beginning in the prologue of the Gospel of John. And then it's present again in a major way in the chapter right before our text this morning. In uh, John chapter 8, if you just look to the left, verse 12, Jesus famously says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this statement, which Jesus probably said at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, brings out this contrast again between light and dark. And this particular statement leads to a long, heated controversy between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. One that if you read all of John 8, you'll see that it's actually filled with some of like the harshest dialogue in all the Gospels, really, um, it, it escalates to the point that Jesus calls the leaders, quote, sons of their father, the devil, in verse 44, and then they, in turn, call Jesus a demon-infested Samaritan, in verse 48, and then all this culminates in, uh, in Jesus's clear and famous and paradigm-shifting claim of identity with Yahweh when he says, before Abraham was, I am, in verse 58. And then after that, the leaders promptly attempt to stone him for blasphemy on the spot. So all of this controversy in, in John 8, this friction between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities, uh, all of it initiated by Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, all of this is in our minds and is in the background as we approach our text in John 9 for this morning. So jumping in, we're going to see how Jesus takes this light metaphor, this contrast, even further and how it does, in fact, further escalate this conflict that's already there between him and the Jewish authorities. So um, as we look to John 9, uh, this is sometime later. We're not exactly sure how long, how much time has passed, um, but this happens. Look with me in verse 1. 
As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples' question might sound a little bit odd to us, um, but it actually was in line with some common rabbinical teachings of Jesus' day. And I don't know, for what it's worth, we probably shouldn't, just on the face of it, completely reject the idea that God can sometimes judge sin in temporal means. Or we probably shouldn't reject the idea just up front that sometimes God might actually visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Um, but in this case specifically, I think we are wise. Whoa. I think uh, we are wise to, um, you know, heed John Calvin's warning in his commentary on this passage when he says to be exceedingly careful not to push our inquiries into the judgments of God beyond the measure of sobriety. So when we're dealing with the mysterious hidden judgments of God, we should be careful, right? And Calvin goes on to say they are false interpreters, therefore, who say that all afflictions without any distinction are sent on account of sins. So regardless, in this case, in this particular case, with this particular blind man, um, Jesus confirms for us that the disciples' questions are off base. Right? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this blindness isn't primarily caused by the efficient cause of sin, but it's there because of the final cause for God's glory being revealed in his works. Um, and if you're not familiar with uh, Aristotelian, the four types of causes, just ignore that sentence. Um, <laughs> And then in verse 4, it continues, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here again, we see another Johannine contrast, right? Day and night. And um, this is closely followed by the light metaphor again, repetition of the same I am statement from John chapter 8. Jesus is saying that the day of his time on earth is fading, so both he and the disciples must now work God's works of being light to the world while they still can, while Jesus is still there. And one such work is before them right now. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This man that was born blind is healed. And he's not healed immediately. Uh, he's not healed immediately in either sense of that word, immediately. Jesus uses both a physical medium, this really strange combination of spit and dirt, to anoint, to heal this man's eyes. And this healing didn't happen instantaneously either. The, uh, the man had to go to Siloam and wash in the pool before he could see again. Um, and I'm wary, again, of Calvin's warning to not push our inquiries into God's mysterious judgments, but maybe this shows a tendency of God to choose to work in and through ordinary, regular, physical, earthly means rather than always in the extraordinary. I don't know. Um, and additionally, you'll see that John translates Siloam here for his Greek readers as sent, which maybe it's just a helpful gesture. He wants to help cross the language barrier. Um, but it also probably points to Jesus himself, who, if you look back in verse 4, describes himself as being sent from the Father. So that's a cool connection there. But then, 
curiously, weirdly, Jesus totally disappears from this story until the very end. The camera, as it were, kind of shifts away from Jesus to this blind guy after he's been healed. His neighbors see his changed condition and naturally they're pretty curious about what happened. Look with me at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? I love this. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. I love, I love the blind guy. He, he tells him exactly, like word for word, exactly what happened. No embellishing, no anything. He is, I, more than anything else, I admire this guy's matter-of-factness. They say, what happened? And he said, well, this happened in exactly this order at exactly this time. You asked me, and I told you. <laughs> and these neighbors were so enamored by this guy that they bring him before the Pharisees. The very religious leaders that we just saw a chapter ago aren't getting along incredibly well with Jesus at the moment. And so, at this point, I have to say that whoever designed the uh, lectionary that we use in the Book of Common Prayer, um, whoever designed this wisely looked ahead through the corridors of time and saw that they did not want Logan up here talking for two hours. So, the reading skips a huge chunk in the middle of John 9. So, the reading skips down to verse 28, and... um, we're going to jump down there, but I'll kind of summarize what's going on in the middle. The, uh, we find out, as we're reading, that the healing, uh, the healing of this blind man took place on the Sabbath. And if you're an informed reader of the Gospels, you're reading this and you see, oh, this, this healing actually happened on the Sabbath. And you're like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. Um, and so we find the leaders are doing what they do. They're arguing over who they think Jesus is. And then they come to disbelieve that the man was even actually born blind, and they call his parents in and ask them to verify, and they do. And then the leaders in this whole time are just getting more and more frustrated about Jesus, about the formerly blind guy, all this stuff. And, and the guy, it's so funny, as it goes, he seems to grow more and more fond of Jesus as he talks. Um, and then we're going to pick back up with the lectionary in verse 28 that Nate read for us, says, talking about the Pharisees, they reviled the blind man, saying, you are Jesus' disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then, I, I love this guy again, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So this man, as he does, holds fast to what he knew. He says, this happened to me exactly like this, and you're not going to change my mind about it. And as he's doing so, he argues pretty cogently, actually, that Jesus cannot be against God. Um, And the religious authorities respond with this this low blow, really, this biting kind of ad hominem rebuttal. 
uh, you were born in utter sin. Like, shut up, you sinner. We know better than you. And then they cast him out, which could and probably does mean that they, they excommunicated him from the synagogue. And then, at this moment, after a conspicuous and extended absence from the whole scene, the camera shifts back to Jesus. He shows back up. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? These three verbs in this verse are so significant. Jesus heard, and Jesus found, and Jesus said. Jesus heard about the man's plight. He went to find him. He sought him out, which must have taken planning and effort. And then he spoke to him and invited him to trust in the Son of Man. We're going to come back to those three verbs in a minute. But then the blind guy says, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? It's kind of funny. This guy might not even know who Jesus is yet. (laughs) He's potentially never actually seen him until this moment, depending on how you read verse 7. But either way, whether he's seen him or not, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And so this formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man believes in Jesus, and he falls on his knees in worship at his feet. And this would be a beautiful end to the passage, were it not... uh, Maybe I can say, were it not for Jesus feeling the need to comment on the episode that happened. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And uh, being the astute people that they were, and recognizing the thinly veiled analogy of spiritual sight beneath Jesus' statement about physical sight, the Pharisees respond in kind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is not saying that blind people are not guilty of sin. And he's not even saying that spiritually blind people are not guilty of sin. Jesus is saying that those who admit and those who recognize their blindness, can then be in a posture, be in a state to receive the eye-opening light of the world, but that those who grovel about in darkness thinking that they see all, maybe if you're familiar with it, you should have something like Plato's cave in your mind, those who grovel about in darkness thinking they know everything, thinking they see it all so perfectly, they are stuck in their sad state of affairs. And in the words of Donald Guthrie in his commentary on this passage, he says that Jesus was claiming that willful blindness carried with it guilt, in this case, the guilt of rejection of God's messenger. That is a very apt phrase for the Pharisees here, willful blindness. And this charge of Jesus against the willfully blind Pharisees is where our text for this morning ends. So I have three suggestions for application of this passage, one each that centers on one of the three main characters in the story, right? An application for the Pharisees, an application for Jesus, and an application centering on the blind man himself. We're going to walk through these. So first, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are willfully blind of who Jesus is, to use Guthrie's words. 
And Jesus makes it clear that they are guilty because of it. And this willful blindness is, I think, an ever-present danger of all people in all times and all places, and maybe especially one for religious people. How easily does spiritual hubris ensnare us? How often do we think that we see things so clearly? We think that we see things about the world, about the church, about our friends, about our family, or even ourselves so clearly. We think we see the objective truth, that we have the God's eye view on the situation. We don't recognize our own biases. We don't recognize our own presuppositions. And we think that we've got life figured out, right? We're kind of we're like Samuel in our Old Testament reading that John read this morning, who, you know, one of the sons of Jesse walks by and Samuel says, surely this big, strong, strapping young man is the Lord's anointed. It's got to be him. Look at him. We do the same things, don't we? We say, surely this bigger and better ministry program, surely this promotion that makes more money, surely this relationship that checks all the boxes, surely saying yes to this really godly request, this has got to be the Lord's will, right? Look at it. It's so good. But how often do we forget, just like Samuel did, that the Lord sees not as man sees? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And perhaps our worst spiritual blindness comes out when we look to ourselves. John Calvin, again, I think hits the nail on the head. He says, while every man is ready to censure others with extreme bitterness, and that that phrase makes me wonder, did Calvin have Twitter? Did he see what's going on today? Censure others with extreme bitterness. There are few who apply to themselves as they ought to do the same severity. If my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my own sins. But in considering punishments, every man ought to begin with himself and to spare himself as little as any other person. And this is his point. Wherefore, if we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than the evils of others. Let us be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. And this is not easy to do. This was so difficult for the Pharisees to do, and it's so difficult for us. See, we shouldn't, when we're reading the Gospels, we shouldn't always read the Pharisees as those bad guys who us good followers of Jesus aren't ever anything like. I, I mean, if I'm honest, I find that I can be far more willfully blind than the Pharisees ever were. This leads me to say, thank God for the grace and the mercy of the gospel. Because apart from this, apart from Jesus, I am a lost, blind guide. And thank God that his mercy leads us to repentance. I think, to finish up this first application, that we should take this warning of Jesus against willful blindness seriously and perhaps where we find it, where necessary, we should repent of our hubris. And what better time than Lent for this type of reflection, introspection, and repentance? So that was the Pharisees. And second, we'll look at Jesus. Jesus was, by his nature, in and of himself, the light of the world that opened the eyes of the blind. 
while we are not that in and of ourselves, and maybe we should pause there, I think I need to hear that sometimes, I am not in and of myself the light of the world, and neither are you. But while we are not that in and of ourselves, Jesus, as I'm sure you know, does remind us in another gospel in the Sermon on the Mount that his followers are in some sense supposed to also be the light of the world. So how do we do this? How do you rectify this? I think we could, partly by following Paul's admonition that was read for us in Ephesians 5, right? Be imitators of God. Jesus was the light of the world, so how do we do that? We do what he did. We imitate Jesus, right? And one example of this that is present in John 9, and I just, I just, can't, I just can't help but talking about it. I just, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't help it, but in John 9, Jesus models perfectly for us incarnational mission. Again, it's such a central thing. I, I just, yeah, sorry. I don't know. I can't, I can't help but talking about it. So, you know, I know I sound like a broken record talking about incarnational mission, but it's there and it's so important. So Jesus, in verse 35 of John 9, Jesus heard, Jesus found, and Jesus said, right? Jesus heard that this man was kicked out of the synagogue. And so a question for us is, are we hearing? Are we listening? Not to the news, not to Facebook echo chambers, not listening to the culture, whatever that means, but are we listening to real people around us? Are our ears open enough and are we tuned in enough to hear the cries of a lost and broken world in the lives of like, like real, physical, concrete people in our spheres? We have to be engaged in the world. If we want to be the light of the world, we've got to be engaged in the world concretely and consistently enough to actually hear the heartache of real people. So Jesus heard. And then Jesus found. Jesus found this blind man. He intentionally, on purpose, went and sought him out. How can we do that? How can we imitate Jesus in this way? How can we go to them where they're at to seek them out, to find them, to love them, to care for them? This can be done anywhere. This can be done in people's homes, at coffee shops, at sporting events, in high school student sections if you want to. This can be done on the phone, on long car rides. This could be in the break room, at work. It doesn't have to be anything fancy or programmed. It, in fact, it actually shouldn't be. A huge part, maybe, maybe the biggest part of being the light of the world is to be found in otherwise dark spaces. Hear that? To, to be the light of the world means to go where it is dark. We are called in Ephesians 5 to walk as children of light and expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And we do that by going, going to where it is dark. So Jesus heard, Jesus found, and then Jesus said, Jesus said something. Jesus spoke and invited this blind guy, this formerly blind guy, to trust in him. So we, as we are on mission, being the light of the world, living life among hurting people in dark spaces, in whatever capacity we can do it, we must speak. We must put words to it. And this isn't I don't think we need another five-step process of how to evangelize or another Romans road or another, 
you know, these are the points you have to cover. I think we know what to say. We have the words of life. We know what it is to speak life into people's lives. We just got to do it. We live our vocation as light bearers most fully when we speak words of life and light into death and darkness. So Jesus heard, found, and said, and that was partly how he enacted being the light of the world. And so to imitate Jesus, we should do the same. So we looked at the Pharisees, and we looked at Jesus. And so thirdly and finally, we're going to look at the blind guy himself. This guy was the recipient of the divine grace of healing. He held fast to the truth despite persecution, and he was sought out and comforted by Jesus himself, placing all his trust in him, falling at his feet in worship. Maybe some of us are tired. I know I am. Maybe we're exhausted. Maybe we're worn out. And maybe everything I've said up here so far about repentance and mission sounds like nothing other than condemnation and commandment. Maybe that's all you've heard. Maybe some of us recognize that we are in fact blind and that our being reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is legitimately our only hope. Maybe we've been kicked out and we need to cast ourselves solely on the guidance and providence of Jesus like the blind man did. If that's you, if any of these things apply to you, and maybe if you're wearied this morning from the charges of John or of Samuel or of Paul, we had one more reading this morning, so maybe we should try David instead. I'll give him the last word this morning. I'll end with the words of Psalm 23 that promise everything we need if we are weary, that promise rest companionship, guidance, preservation, sustenance, and hope for the weary sheep of the Good Shepherd. So Christian, hear these words, hear these promises this morning. Pray this in your heart to your king, to your shepherd this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and let us confess.